Here we are at Pot and Market. So where do I begin with Jordan? As with all my shows, I asked the guest to forward a quick bio for the show. This is his. Jordan is a 2018 graduate of Princeton University, where a successful academic career culminated in such distinctions as summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, the Myron T. Herrick Thesis Prize, and a 2018 Spirit of Princeton Award. At Princeton, he concentrated in public and international affairs. He received dual certificates in Portuguese language and culture and in African-American studies, and he focuses academic coursework on poverty, inequality, and social mobility. Jordan is particularly interested in the role that law, public policy, and high-quality education play in expanding access and opportunity for disadvantaged populations. In addition, he has a growing interest in impact investment, urban economic development, and the ways in which power of capital can be harnessed for social good. As one of 32 American students selected from a pool of over 2,500 applicants to receive a 2018 Rhodes Scholarship, the first Rhodes Scholar in the history of the Newark Public School System, Jordan recently completed a year of postgraduate study at the University of Oxford. He spent this year pursuing a master's degree in evidence-based social intervention and policy evaluation. Jordan will spend the next two years gaining professional experience before enrolling at both Yale Law School and Harvard Business School for a unique JD-MBA dual degree between the two institutions. Ultimately, he intends to engage in in work that most directly promotes equal opportunity, social mobility, and justice for all, end quote. That's a lot. (laughs) Um, The funny thing is, I actually knew Jordan before all of this. Um, I first met him. He was a senior in high school at a university high school. Um, and I, I do a lot of interviews for Harvard, uh, undergraduates and, um, most particularly when the student is from Newark, I tend to be one of the interviewers that they interact with. And I came across this application. Um, I I don't get to pick them, but it was given to me. Um, and I just read his background and I, I was just instantly both perplexed, but also amazed, um, and then came the interview, and I was floored. Uh, his presence, um, his forethought, <laughs> um, just astounded me. And um, and I felt that he was sort of an embodiment of Newark. And uh, naturally, he got accepted. He also got accepted to several other institutions, among which is this certain school in New Jersey called Princeton. Don't know much about it. Um and I, I begged and pleaded and did everything in my, my persuasive power um, to convince him to go to Harvard. Sadly, he turned us down. And um, it's been downhill for him ever since. In <laughs> uh, uh, all jokes aside, I, um, I, I, keep, I keep tabs on Jordan and I kept following him. He's the only, I think, the only applicant who, um, I do this with all applicants who get in and 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 enroll. I, I keep, you know I, I interact with them. I, I, I check in on them. Um, Lucia and um, and Kim, who were on a previous episode of this podcast, I, I constantly have coffee with them at least once a year to check in and see how they're doing. And with Jordan, I've not not as frequent in person conversations, but I've definitely kept up with him um, virtually and telephonically. And um, it's just amazing to see his progress over the years. Um, and I wanted to share not only like he's been in the media, he's been um, interviewed by news programs, by um, by other outfits, and uh, you can get all that kind of information about him, and I'll put it on the website. But I also want him to take this opportunity on this podcast to a tell his story, which he's told many times, but also to share his views and 
what he plans on doing with himself and how that interacts. Um, so welcome, Jordan. I hope you int- enjoy that introduction. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks, man. I mean, this is this is so cool. I mean, it's really a full circle moment in, in so many ways. Like you said, I mean, who would have thought, right? Six years ago, I remember walking into this Starbucks as this very confused senior at university high school, and I was I was all dressed up. I had my, my crimson on to try to have the Harvard colors, and my tie was all was all spiffy and, and, and walking in just very nervous, like not even knowing, right? It was like this aura of Harvard. Uh, and it's like, I was getting ready to do this interview that I thought was like, you know, going to determine my fate at the school. And, you know, and then you just put me so much at ease, like just talking to you and seeing like how genuine you were, how down to earth you were and how legitimately interested you were in my background. Um, and, and it really was, it was, it was more conversational than an interview. And I think that's, that's a real skill on the part of the interviewer. And, and, you know, you just gave me so much advice. I didn't end up going to Harvard. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll get there eventually. Uh, yep. But <laughs> so, you know, you did sway me. It did have a special place in my heart. Uh, but, but you know, what I did take away from that, even if not immediately the school, was you just gave me so many words of wisdom. Uh, you know, coming, coming from a background like ours, going to a place like Harvard was was, you know, something that was nerve wracking. And I remember asking you even the little questions that seem silly now, right? Like, how do you write an eight page paper? They're gonna Mm -hmm. give me a 10 page paper. How do I write that? And right, and no no question was was too silly for you. And now it's like, looking back, you know, at Princeton, I sort of had to write this, this thesis that ended up being over 100 pages. And it was like, I look back and it was like, wow, as a senior, I was asking, how do I write a 10 page paper, right? And like, you knew this, but you know, that wasn't a silly question to you. And, And, you know, I'm just so thankful that that you you shared those words of wisdom with me, and that we have managed to stay in touch ever since. Yeah. Um, so actually, you mentioned a thesis. Let's talk about what you wrote your thesis on, because if you're writing a hundred pages, I, I'd imagine it's about something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was on school-based support services for pregnant and parenting students in the Newark public school system, wow. and it was somewhat of an, an intriguing topic, unusual topic at least for me, because you know my background, at least to that point, was very much rooted in education, law, and policy. And so at one point, I I thought that I would probably write a thesis on public versus charter schools in the Newark public school system. There's such a hot button topic. Uh, And I was student representative on the Newark public school board uh, in my senior year of high school. So it was something that was close to home. But in my junior year at Princeton, I just fell in love with maternal and child health research. And uh, my advisor at Princeton, who ended up being my advisor all four years there, and also advised my thesis, uh, she was very much rooted in that literature. And then you know, sort of influenced by my mother, you know, just such a strong influence in my life, strong woman, always sort of infusing feminist values in me and an appreciation for women. I was deeply bothered by the fact that I knew so much about struggles of minorities. I knew what it, what it was like navigating this world as an African-American male, um, but didn't know enough about the struggles and the conflicts that face women every day existing in a patriarchal society, right? And so it, I just felt like that was something that if I wanted to be a better man, a better human being, I needed to learn more about maternal and child health and just fell in love with it. And so I wrote both of my junior papers at Princeton on maternal and child health topics and then got to the senior thesis which was going to be the major research project for me and and was sort of in this weird conflict place where it's like okay i love education law and policy always have i love this maternal and child health stuff now um and it's like, how do I merge this? And of course, there's still that hometown uh, bias with Newark. And it's like, I'd love to get that in there. 
And this was just like that perfect matching of everything. So the way that I went about looking at this was there were certain standards of care and service that schools are required by law under Title IX uh, to provide to pregnant and parenting students. A lot of people associate Title IX with you know sexual assault on college campuses or, or uh, sex discrimination in sports teams, but there actually is language in there that covers certain services for students who may be pregnant, because if you don't provide those services, it's considered a form of sex discrimination. And so that was like this tie to the law that like satisfied that interest in the law. It was rooted in education because I was looking at the Newark public school system. It was fundamentally Newark. I was actually going into schools and I was interviewing principals, guidance counselors, nurses. I spoke with a couple of the assistant superintendents and I was basically just asking them, you know, what are you doing to provide services for these students? What's worked well? What hasn't worked so well? What do you think could be improved? Um, and, and ended up going to 11 of the public high schools across NPS. That's just, all of them, isn't it? Right. Or it was, it was close. There were, there were a few in there that I couldn't get. I couldn't get yeah. Westside high. Uh, but I did get a couple like the the night school uplift, which mm. was really cool. It was an important perspective to get. It was like an alternative school, uh, and the population's a little bit different. So I got almost every school in there. It was it was a, it was a massive project. It was very much facilitated through the superintendent, who really helped me out with it. And Surf at the time, or that was uh, Gregory at the time. Yeah, okay. yeah, who was sort got of it. interim at the time. Right, right. Uh, Robert Gregory and. And so it was It was a very expansive project. I, I tried to get a good sense of what was going on across all the high schools and, and you know, basically asking, like, okay, these, these are the requirements. These are some best practices. So I compared what Newark was doing to districts that in the literature are said to have pretty robust programs. So Baltimore, Maryland, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, Chicago, Illinois, and a couple of others. And... And the findings were actually really promising. Uh, what I found was that Newark is in line with all required standards. Uh, we are meeting Title IX requirements. Um, and some best practices are there. Generally, there's room for improvement. And, and you know, I, I, I outlined that in my thesis, a few things that we could do to try to try to really get on par with the best of the best. But it was just very cool to, to do a hometown thesis like that and to speak to people who, who I had interacted with in my time in the school board, I mean, who just, you know, were, were important people in my life as well. It was, again, kind of like a full circle moment, kind of like this. Um, and, and I thought that it, it was, it was going to provide a lot of good to the city. And it has, you know, I, I actually ended up giving it to, uh, to the district. I, I gave it to the superintendent. And I think that they're actually working on trying to appoint somebody who will be looking at school-based support services in a particular district level role. It tends to be a very school level thing. And that's why we get some disparity in what a school like a university high school might be doing versus what a central high school might be doing, because it tends to be like local level or sorry, school level, like guidance counselor decision or nurse decision. And, and so the district wants to move towards having a more centralized person looking at this stuff. So will, it, will we actually get there? I don't know. But I thought it was cool to produce some body of work that at least got people thinking about it. I actually am kind of interested just a little bit. Um, when a student becomes a, a parent, um, is there a tendency to drop out? Um, and on the sort of latter end, what services do they need? And, and do we not often think about what they need? So, so yes, yeah, they're definitely at higher risk of dropout. They're also at higher risk of negative health outcomes, uh, higher risk of uh, getting in touch with the criminal justice system, uh, higher risk of, or not necessarily higher risk, but just uh, difficulty finding employment. So there's all sorts of uh, slippery slope negative life outcomes that are associated with early stage pregnancy, unintended pregnancy. And, uh, you know, some of the services to just accommodate them are... Um, 
you know, you you can't stop them from participating in certain activities unless it was like medically ordered that they you know can no longer participate in gym. Please excuse them from mm. gym or something. But like the school itself cannot say, oh, because you're pregnant, you can't be in this club or you can't do this activity. Uh, that's actually considered a form of sex discrimination. Does that happen? In in some schools, it does. Not in Newark, thankfully, yeah. right? Like this was you know where I said the the findings in Newark were very promising. That that's a requirement. That's not a best practice. Like it's like you cannot discriminate. But in some districts, it's actually not. Not even the case that they will say, you know, you're pregnant, you can no longer do X, Y, Z. But in some districts, uh, particularly down south, uh, they've created alternative pregnancy schools where it's like they will actually funnel them into an independent school, which is purely for pregnant and parenting students. Um, and and you know that's not as common anymore. That was something that was that was very big, sort of pre pre 2000s era. <laughs> Um, but it's still something you see in a few districts. They will actually funnel them into an independent school and say, while you're pregnant, you must go to this school. And so, and so that's one thing. Another thing will be, you know, just being very accommodating of when they need, uh, they need to take days off to go do checkups and, and get prenatal health services, et cetera. And some schools are quite rigid with that. They will hold them accountable. They won't let them make up work. Like all of that stuff is yeah. required. You have to, you have to create a schedule that, that accommodates their pregnancy needs. Uh, so that's a few things. Do they um, get an IEP by the virtue of being they pregnant? Do. Yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I never even thought about it. It's funny because I was a high school teacher myself. And um, I had stopped, when I interviewed, I had already stopped teaching at that point. But um, I th I remember doing IEPs for students with, you know, sort of intellectual disabilities and, and, and stuff in that vein. Yeah. I, I And I did have pregnant students, but I never thought of, like, actually IEPs applying to them, right? I mean, yeah. we have, sometimes we do have blinders on. Um, but it's kind of interesting as you talk about this stuff. It, it reminds me of, like, the language we use around IEPs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's so important to make sure that we have a robust system for IEPs, because that usually will outline sort of the conditions of, of what they need and how we can we can best accommodate them. Um, and so, th I mean, there, there are a number of things we could do as best practices. I've been mentioning that. And I realize I haven't even talked about those. But some things are like having a nursery, like a school daycare. Mm. Um, Central High School actually has one, as well as Behringer High School uh, actually has a nursery, a daycare for uh, for their students' children. On-site. On-site. Yes. On-site. And those are the two in Newark. It's at Behringer and, uh, and at Central High School. Um, and, and, you know, like that's just one of the things that makes the job of being a student parent so much easier is when you don't have to worry about, you know, I have this kid that I need to drop off for daycare, but my daycare is like 20 minutes away from the school. And then maybe you have a little brother that you also have to drop off to school before you even go to school. So now you have to drop off two people. It's like you're late, you miss your first period class. And then it's like slippery slope kicks in, right? It's like, why am I even doing this? Like nobody cares. Nobody's helping me. Um, so just like accommodating for students' needs by having it on site is is one of the best practices. Another thing is is um, either giving extra or um, or somehow arranging a busing system for these mm. students. Again, sort of related to they have a lot of extra things that they're juggling. They're they're kind of all over the place, and so um, it really helps if you can just give them the extra bus tickets that they need to take care of those services, get those services that they need. Another thing is you know unfortunately is is and it's it's by necessity in a lot of ways, but uh, we determine bus ticket eligibility in the district by distance or proximity to the school, right? So yeah. it's like you need to fall within a certain radius. And, and generally that works fine, but that's really tough in the pregnant and parenting students case because they may be right outside 
of, of that radius uh, limitation that you put in there. But it's like they just really need those services. So it's like um, sometimes determining eligibility purely by distance isn't necessarily the best way to do it. And some, a lot of districts now are doing best practice things. It's like by nature of being pregnant or parenting, you'll get extra bus tickets or you'll be eligible for bus tickets. This is neither here nor there, but I've always wondered why we just never allowed students to ride. NJ Transit yeah. <laughs> in all its many forms from the light rail to the bus to yeah. maybe even, um, it's kind of hard to endure because you really don't use the the train NJ yeah. Transit to get between places in Newark. But I never understood why we just didn't like people ride it for free, like students ride it for free. Because yeah. um, it feels like that's another way of getting around that dumb issue of like, because I was a teacher who handed out bus tickets and it was almost like giving out rations. It was, it was, yeah. it was weird. Yeah. Um, and but students you, will trade it too. Yeah. Like, oh, that, no, that is so true. I'll give, you, I'll give you $2. <laughs> and they think we don't notice. It's actually kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, not to redirect, I actually, um, we got really into like this deep and, and yeah. tough subject, but yeah. um, let me just spin outward a little bit more and talk about, or, or ask you about um, growing up in Newark. Uh, we have a lot of students who, who listen, not a lot, but like uh, some students who listen to this program. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what was it like to grow up here and, um, going to university and uh, what was your elementary school uh ironbound catholic academy okay yeah so like transitioning from a private school to um a public high school yeah it was it was tough uh you know growing up in newark was was something that i always attribute to you know characteristics like resilience hope um, passion. It was like there is a certain character and grit in Newark, I think, that is just like acquired uh, by growing up in the city because it, it is. It could be a tough environment. Resources weren't always there, particularly in my household. So my mother's side of the family are, are immigrants from Portugal. My mother came over with my grandparents at the age of seven. And then my dad's side of the family is African-American, you know, grew up low income, under-resourced in the projects of Newark. And so, I mean, we didn't really grow up with much. I, I remember we were actually growing up. Uh, I was on the third floor of a three-story apartment with my mother. And then my grandparents were on the first floor. They were the landlords. They owned the apartment. And, and we were there uh, while, you know, at the time my dad was working through some things with the previous marriage. And so, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't always easy. We didn't have a lot. Uh, but what we did have was just this, this hope and this belief that it was like through education, you can change this for yourself. And my dad, you know, was... was uh, always very adamant about that. He's an educator in Newark. He teaches middle school science. And so I just remember like every night he would, he would, you know, somehow reference the importance of education. And he'd always tell me, you know, they could take your car, they could take your job, they could take your wife, but they can't take your education. He's like, if you work hard and you get good grades, like you can control your future. And like, that just meant so much to me growing up in a place like Newark and seeing struggles, seeing friends that were going through things, uh, you know, seeing in my household, you know, things weren't always peachy. My parents did their best to not, to not show me that, but it's like, how can you, how can you not sense that like something is, is a little different. Right. And so, um, just this constant belief that it's like if I just work hard, like I can, I can change that for me and for my family, and and that's always been a big thing for me. Is it's like I don't do things for myself; I do things for others, and that that originally was rooted in my family. But as I grew up and I started seeing the sort of like I said, the broader struggles of Newark, right? Like my friends with parents who are working two, three jobs, single single mother households working two, three jobs, or you know, like you know, going to going to high school, and it's like you want to go to go to a, a movie with your friends, but you can't because like they don't have the 11 bucks for, for a movie ticket. Right? I mean, it's like little things like that that are just different in Newark uh, for a lot of a lot of students, like just really bothered me such that like when I got into Princeton, I was like simultaneously elated, like that was like my dream. And, and also just felt very 
very somber that it was like in some ways I'm an exception right like it really bothered me that there were other talented students in Newark who who wouldn't ever have that opportunity because of sort of institutional barriers and resource struggles um, and so that's where then that sort of passion for others and not not necessarily doing education for self but for others transition from just being family oriented to then being very community oriented is like I felt an obligation I felt a responsibility and a calling uh, to use my my network and my privilege of going to a school like Princeton to give back to the community and try to address some of those institutional barriers. And then that spread from just being Newark to eventually being communities like Newark, right? So like I'm equally troubled that a place like Trenton is struggling um, as I am by the fact that like Newark is struggling. You know, home, Newark is my home base. Mm-hmm. That's my hometown. But like I think struggles like that aren't limited to Newark and that deeply bothers me. Uh, you know, but beyond that sort of, you, you know, I mentioned the transition from Catholic school uh, to, to public school. It was such a pivotal time in my life. So I transitioned uh in the seventh grade. So I was at Ironbound Catholic Academy straight through elementary school and then actually sixth grade. But university is one of the magnet schools in Newark that had seventh and eighth grade. And, you know, private school, uh, my parents thought were was a good option at the time, but we just realized there were certain things that, that weren't a good fit um, and that it'd probably be better to get into a public school, especially a public school like university that just had such a strong reputation, you know, it was like just known in the district for really producing leaders and getting students on track. And so it, it made sense to switch. But it was a tough switch for me because I went to a, I went to, from being, you know, probably one of two black students in the entire school. It was, it was at university at, at uh, Ironbound Catholic. Oh, Ironbound Catholic. Okay. Yeah. yeah. At ICM, it's largely Portuguese, yeah, yeah, Southern yeah. American population. And, you know, I have the Portuguese heritage, but I am sort of phenotypically yeah. facially black. Uh, right. And so went from being one of the, uh, one of maybe two, maybe three uh, black students in the entire school to then going to university where it, it must be like 95% black, mm. you know, I mean, it's, it, it was, it was definitely a transition and it, and it was a growing period for me. And even that culture shift uh, from being in a place like in an ICA, I was bright, you know, you mm. talk to my student, uh, you talk to my teacher, and they'll say, oh, he's a smart student, he's talented. But I was a goofball. I really was. I was one of the class clowns, which is probably funny for a lot of people to think now. But I was I was like one of two students every year who was cracking jokes and fooling around. And I'd, I'd get Good grades, A's and B's, but definitely didn't have my head in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I get to university where the entire culture is different. Like they're talking about, uh, you know, this is a, a school of excellence. This is a school of leaders. This is where we gather the best of the best and we commit to being the best version of ourselves. And that, that just really kind of snapped something in me where like seventh grade, like I really put my nose to the grind and ended up finishing seventh grade at the top of the class. Um, and then there was just sort of this expectation. It's like, oh man, like Jordan's going to be valedictorian the mm-hmm. next year. And, uh, and then, you know, I fell back into my old ways. I got comfortable. I was like, oh, I know how to do this thing. Like this university thing is cool. Made some friends. The transition was going well and started slacking off again. Uh, I was playing too many video games, uh, was, you know, just spending too many late nights on the phone with a friend, maybe trying to talk to girls or something. I mean, my head just wasn't in the game. Um, and, and the big shock for me uh, was we get to the end of that year and I knew my grades hadn't been great. I mean, I think I even got like one or two C's at one point in there, which was just like unheard of for me, right? And it was like, you know, remember having a, <laughs> a day where my dad took me to see grandma and it was like, grandma's like the matriarch of the family, mm. right? And it was like, you know, there's so many things that dad could have said that, that you know, obviously would have would have probably gotten me on track. But he knew it was like, like you take him to see grandma and mm. it's going to do the trick. And so I just remember feeling so bad when he took me 
to go see grandma. And I was like, you see what he's been doing? And like, you know, it, that really hit me hard. But what, what really sparked this, I would say, transformative fundamental change in my life was we get to the end of eighth grade and they announce valedictorian and salutatorian on the intercom and everybody just kind of looking at me. They mm. expect it to be me and they don't say my name for valedictorian. And then it's like, okay, like, ooh, like, well, you know, it's like this, this weird feeling, this weird tension in the room. And then they say salutatorian and they don't say my name for salutatorian. Uh, and it turns out that because I had been slacking off and fooling around so much, I actually fell to third place uh, in my class. You know, it's like you don't get recognized for that. Like there, yeah. there, it's nothing, you know, nothing that that I was expecting sort of came from that. And that that was a real rude awakening. I attribute that moment to this passion and this fire in, in me now. I, I remember going home. And in the eighth grade, right, I was like, what, like 13 years old. Hmm. I remember like looking in the mirror and asking myself in that moment, like, what type of person do I want to be in this role? Do I want to be the person that just, you know, goes at it 50%, like just does enough to skid by, right? Because mm-hmm. I was talented. Like all my teachers would tell you that I was talented, but I just wasn't working. And I, I had to ask myself, honestly, like, do I want to be the type of person who rests on their lowers, rests on, on being talented alone? Or do I want to be the type of person who sets my sights on something and does Anything in my power, anything in my ability always gives 110% to execute that with, with ultimate efficiency. Um, and, and that was what I ultimately said to myself is like, if I want something, I will never be the reason again. It won't be because I didn't try hard enough or I fooled around too much that I don't get something. It will be because I gave it my hardest and just couldn't do it. And I remember that was a mentality I went into ninth grade with uh, and then never looked back. I ended up finishing ninth grade at the top of my class and, and would hold that number one spot straight through. I'd end up graduating uh, with the highest GPA in university high school's history. Um, I mean, if you just take it from there and it's the same fire that fuels me every single day. It's like I wake up every morning and ask myself, how can I be a better version of myself than I was yesterday? And and no matter what I'm doing, I will commit wholeheartedly to giving it 110%. I will never, uh, never give anything less than that because it would be an injustice to myself, but also an injustice to whatever task I'm working on. Well, <laughs> I'm actually laughing because the same thing happened to me in eighth grade, funny enough. Um, I think there were also a lot of expectations around me getting either valedictorian or salutatorian yeah. in First Avenue, neither of which happened. Um, and I had not thought about that for years until you yeah. started mentioning your story. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that happened yeah. to me. And it's it's just kind of funny because my reaction was like, the system's rigged. <laughs> and I love your reaction. This is why you're fundamentally a better person than I. Oh, please, please. Um, is your reaction is like, I got to do harder. And I'm like, mm, something's up. <laughs> um, but uh, me aside, um, it's funny because you mentioned two things that I constantly think about um, yeah. looking back. And this is a little bit earlier in what you were talking about. But two, the first is... Um, what people don't talk about students from Newark, like they're a, they're a lot smarter than you would think they are. Yeah. Um, like you know, I've had other kids from Newark going to Harvard on this program already. I know more that um, do exist and grew up on my the area of Newark I grew up in. Yale grads, for that matter, as well, and um, uh, you know other great schools. Um, you know what I think people call the Ivy Plus. Yeah, but. Um, for those who do go, and I want you to speak to this a little bit, um, is what are the pressures and expectations and how does that affect you? Yeah, it's it's a weird place when you first get there. It's it's not at all like what you recognize coming from a place like Newark, you know, particularly just racially and, and ethnically is, is you go to a place. I mean, I, I had kind of experienced this with my private school 
uh, time in Newark where, like I said, I was one of the only uh, minorities or, or one of the only black minorities, I should say. And then you get to a place like Princeton and, you know, having gone from a school like university that was, like I said, must be about 95% black coming from a place like Newark, which outside of the ironbound section is largely black. You get to a place at Princeton, which is, you know, just so many different ethnicities, but also largely white, uh, you know, and it's just, it's a bit of a culture shock. Uh, you get very used to navigating sectors and spaces where there's just a sort of shared cultural understanding, shared cultural norms, you know, how we as, as fellow black people would interact at university. And like some of those things, like the people that you interact with at Princeton just won't get. And it's, it's also like income-based disparities and differences, right? As you'll, you will come across people at Princeton that, that are fundamentally rooted in wealth, right? I mean, there was the, I think the daughter of the person who owned the Milwaukee Bucks was in mm. my, my graduating class. You know, yeah. uh, Michelle Obama's niece was in my graduating class. I mean, you will meet astounding people who come from all sorts of different income levels, countries, communities, et cetera. And it's just like it's it becomes a constant, almost everyday exercise in learning how to how to interact with people who come from, you know, vastly different worlds from you. And and, and for me, it was it was immediately an exercise in that because my freshman year roommate in so many ways was so different from me. He was from California. So he's from the West Coast. I was from the East Coast. He was largely sort of staunchly conservative. I'm, I'm quite liberal in my politics. He was very religious. I'm not so religious. I would say I'm spiritual, but I don't engage in, in a lot of religious practices in that way. Um, and so, I mean, just so many things that, that sort of put us at odds with each other. And it was an everyday exercise in just learning how to share space with somebody like that, right? And so, uh, but the other thing that I think like immediately hits students who come from places like Newark going to Ivy, Ivy League schools, Ivy Plus schools, is you quickly learn that there's this race that has been going on for years that students have known about and have been prepping for their entire lives that that you you're behind on and you don't even know you're behind yep. on until you get yep. there right and I mean you know I say, I say that in the sense of a lot of these students have um, have legacy in terms of they've had parents who have gone to Ivy League schools or Ivy Plus schools and they're very aware of how to navigate that and so their parents have been prepping them for what they need to do to succeed when they get there or you know they um, they've been in these elite uh, boarding schools and prep schools that have very robust advanced placement programs. So they've taken the best of the best classes. And, and when they get into intro level statistics, which for a student coming from my background, like, you know, never took a statistics class, had no clue what statistics entailed of, to them, that's like, that's easy money, right? Because like they took AP stats in high school, they were at the best boarding school in the country, like, that's an easy A. And like, for me, like I'm working my butt off every day to even try to understand what correlation is, right? It, it, like that's like fundamental statistics. And so that's what I mean. Like there's just this race that's been going on that you're behind on and you, you didn't even know. And then you get there and it's just like, okay, like that's where that fire, like I said, really helped me because I, I entered into this space where I knew right away, my background may not be as firmly rooted in, in wealth and prestige and an elite education like, their, like theirs were, uh, uh, were. but I, uh, what I did have was I had a lot of heart and, and I knew that it doesn't matter to me if you're more talented than me, if you're more gifted than me, if you're wealthier than me, if you have a more elite background than me, you're not gonna outwork me. And it was that constant desire to just be the hardest worker in the room with natural ability, you know, like I never discount the fact that like, thankfully I, I do have those natural talents to sustain that. But when you combine that with that just relentless desire to be the best version of myself and to be the hardest worker in the room, like that's what really served me well. But it's unfortunate that like students coming from backgrounds like ours have to put in that so much more of that extra effort in ways that other students can probably just give it a little less and still do it 
still do as well because they've been prepping for that race their whole lives. Wait, have you read Anthony Abraham Jack's The Privileged Poor? No, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, I feel like a broken record with this book. And people who know me on Facebook know I keep posting about it. Um, and maybe one day I'll get him on this podcast. <laughs> um, but you were describing a lot of what he talks about. Um, the funny thing is you would actually be categorized um, as doubly disadvantaged under his like sort of categorizations wow. of the types of students who go to these elite universities. And I would be under, I hate to say it, but privileged poor because that's like the best title he has yeah. for it. But like of students who came from urban environments or actually less advantaged because he does do rural students too. Okay. And who go to boarding schools or prep schools like right. he did. This has actually happened to him because he did this in Florida. He went to a private day school in Florida and then go to these elite institutions and how they basically have four years of learning the language and making the mistakes where they're a lot less costly. Yeah. Um, and then are able to then like sort of flourish a lot better in these elite institutions. And it's kind of amazing that you um, talk about, like you're very deeply aware of this. And I'm having a little bit of a moment of honesty when I, um, so when, um, when Jordan got into all these universities and was picking between them, I spent a good, I think two hours. It was like a ridiculous amount of time. And I'm so glad you came to yeah. talk to me. Uh, at the bottom of the Gateway Center, I still remember this. Yeah. We were talking in the Gateway Center. Yeah. It was really weird. <laughs> I remember um, that. Of me trying to convince you to go to Harvard. And I had a rule in my own my own mind at the time not to say anything bad about Princeton. Yeah. Uh, a, because just rivalries there, but also like I had two friends who are going to remain nameless who were black from Newark and went to Princeton and had really tough times and wow. really, really bad times there. So much so that they have a really bad um, a bad perspective on their alma mater. And I was very, very nervous about you going there. And and I I didn't know how to navigate that myself, right? Yeah. I was like, how do I... I don't have that experience. I have no way to communicate that to you. Um, but I also understand that you're an 18-year-old making a very <laughs> important life decision, but, does, but that also is weird for you to make that, like, to make that decision under information that you're getting that might be um, really devastating if someone yeah. says it to you, right? And so I was in this kind of weird space of, like, oh, my... Commit, like, not that Harvard's a better place because... We also have our issues, too. In fact, a lot of the microaggression arguments from about six years ago were centered not around Princeton, but around Harvard. Yeah. Um, but to see that you you did flourish there, I'm wondering, what did you do? Um, how did you handle, and you've talked about this a little bit already, but how did you handle that? Um, and what is it? Is it that you just simply focused on your work? Is it that you maybe we're able to make friendships in a way that other people weren't. I, 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 maybe you don't know the answer, but I'm wondering, like, how was it at Princeton for you that you were able to find the, that path that you wanted to follow? I think a few things. I think, you know, I, I've reflected on this quite a bit because I do, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful every day for, for what I've managed to accomplish, but just I'm very keenly aware that, like I said, there are many students um, who who don't do the same thing. And, and I feel a calling to to advise those students, to identify them, to serve as a mentor to them. And so I, I try to be as precise in my language and in my advising as I can be in terms of what I think are some of the key pillars in trying to overcome whatever barriers you face. And I think one of the things just very early on, I was never afraid to ask for help. And that's mm -hmm. a big thing that plagues not just students from our communities, but I mean students from the most prestigious, most elite backgrounds just have this fear of asking for help. And 
I think it's fundamentally rooted in this, this insecurity of, of seeming like, you know, you don't belong. There's a big struggle with imposter syndrome yeah. in, in universities, like, you know, all the Ivies, Ivy plus where you get there and it doesn't matter what background you're from. And you know, this isn't, this isn't everybody, right? There are people who get there and it's like, I belong here. It's people feel a sense of entitlement is like, I deserve to be here. But then you have others who many who, who sort of question themselves. And it's like, you know, this is a highly competitive environment. It's highly competitive admissions process is like, did they make a mistake? And that's, that's sort of the, the fundamental uh, characterization of imposter syndrome is constantly sort of doubting your own worth and your own eligibility to be at a school that you're at. Um, and, and I think that, you know, because people feel that way, they hesitate to seek help or to ask questions when they're in the classroom because they don't want to then give the impression to other people that maybe they don't belong there, right? Like they, there's this fear that if you ask a question, it'll be interpreted as stupid or it's like you don't know what you're doing and you always want to seem like you know what you're doing. That's related to this other concept we talk a lot of in these spaces called effortless perfection. It's mm. like when you look yeah. around you, yeah. everybody just seems like they're very effortlessly going about their yep. day. Everybody's yep. perfect. You're the only one who has problems. Not true, right? But I mean, like, you know, that's just what you think. And it, it creates this very difficult space to navigate when everybody seems like they've got their stuff together and you don't. Um, but that being said, like, I never subscribed to that view. Like, I knew, I was like, this Wait, th so you never felt, do you feel imposter syndrome still? Or? I didn't. I really, really? didn't. Oh, and, um, you know, and I, I think that, again, that was like one of the, the keys for me was like, I never felt like I didn't belong there. They truly, they, they hammered it into us again and again and they do it all the time and people still feel it but they hammered into us again and again we don't make mistakes you deserve to be here and you know what i think really helped was the conversation with uh with you really helped where i sort of asked about you know like how do how do people from backgrounds like ours fare when they get there and you're just very con uh, candid in saying you know it's difficult but you used an expletive that I won't use here, but essentially you said, don't mess up. Uh, <laughs> just don't mess up. Just, you know, do your work, believe that you deserve to be there. And you said to me, Man. you said like, they will benefit from having you on their campus. Like they need voices like yours there because it's, there, there aren't enough of you there. And, and you said like, you know, they, they would be privileged to have you there. It's not the reverse. And don't forget that. And, and then again, you, you finish with, but don't mess up. So the funny uh, thing, this is like, this is so weird. Um, I was saying that to you at a time, and not a time, like this is just generally me. I, I, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. And it's very funny because when I share this with people that I know, they look at me with ISQ. It's like, yeah. why do you feel that way? And I think a lot of people don't understand that it just, it is. I mean, obviously it's something you can talk through and deal with. And um, it's almost like a psychological condition, weirdly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was telling you that from a place of, of deep, deep feeling of that. I constantly, yeah. I still feel this to this day. It's hard to explain to people. Like, it's just, you always feel like you don't belong in the room, that there, there, that you did something that you, you, there was some trick you pulled to get into that space. Yeah. And at that time I was telling you that because I didn't want you to feel that. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know why I'm telling this because he's going to feel it anyway, <laughs> but it's funny that you're saying that you didn't. And like, it's one of those weird things that the one time where I gave advice to someone that actually worked yeah, no, uh, to it, some extent. It really did. And then the other thing that helped was, you know, that conversation was, and like I said, I mean, you know, can't thank you enough. I mean, I still remember vividly six years later, the advice you gave, you gave so much. Um, and then, so that was very much in my mind. And then 
um, Princeton and I'm sure many of the Ivies uh, have these like regional receptions for admitted mm. students where yep. you'll go to this alumni's home, they'll open their home to you and they'll have, um, you know, all of these snacks out for you. But it's really just interacting with other admitted students who are from that same region. Uh, so we did one in sort of the northern part of Jersey where I had a chance to interact with other admitted students who had committed to Princeton at that time. And I had the, the joy of interacting with the dean of admissions, uh, actually, who had read my application, had consulted with the admissions committee and had admitted me. And she just seemed so excited about me. She was so warm and welcoming to me. And I didn't have a chance to, to hear this from her uh, personally, but I saw like she was like talking to my mom the whole time and it was like would not leave my mom's side. And and my mom, after we left, she was like, you will not believe how highly that woman thinks mm. of you. She was like, it was like, you know, she was like, I was, I was almost moved to tears talking to her because she said, you know, like we get phenomenal candidates and there are a lot of candidates we're really excited about. I hadn't committed yet, right? So I was still deciding actually, funny enough, between Princeton and Harvard. And she said, that woman just spent this entire time trying to get me to convince you to come to Princeton mm. On Harvard, she was like, they say that she was saying that um, they they get phenomenal candidates all the time, but they really want you. Uh, you're different, and, and it was like having that very candid moment, like coming from the dean of admissions, like they see something in me, just just made me believe. I didn't believe I was special in any way, right? Like I didn't take that as like, oh, like I'm different, like I deserve to be here more than other people. Like I didn't interpret it that way, but like it was just something that that really put my mind at ease. It was like not only do I belong, not not only do I belong here, but like people were excited about me being here. And it's like, that also I think held me to task because it was like, I didn't want to let people down. Um, and that, that motivated me. So I think like just being able to overcome that and, and sort of believe that it was like, this was a space that I did belong in, then allowed me to feel like I should take advantage of being in a space like that, right? So not only did I did I feel like I should be asking for help, but it was like, you know, even if, if that's, if help is available, I'm paying for this. I'm a part of this community. I should be going to get this help. And so I was very good at, at always taking advantage of Princeton's resources. Early on, it was there were there were workshops on how to study for exams and how to take notes, like all of that. I went to all of those workshops, and it fundamentally changed the way that I approach uh, my, my academics. And I think that that's another piece of advice that I tell students who are coming, not only from backgrounds like ours, but any background. I think it's universally true, is that the things that worked for you in high school that made you phenomenal and got you into a place like a Princeton or a Harvard, whatever school, may not be the same things that then allow you to sustain that success at that level. Like college is just a different thing, just like graduate study is different than undergrad study. Like you constantly need to be evaluating what you're doing. And so like all of those workshops were so helpful for me, but it's like I went to every single one. And it's like if I ever needed help, I'd go to the learning center. I'd go to the writing center where they review your writing. I would speak with advisors thoroughly. I would, and that's another thing. I think like developing relationships. I would always develop relationships with my professors. And so my professors, uh, you know, would serve as mentors to me and I would I would learn so much more take so much more out of the class because I had a personal relationship with the person teaching it so I think like just developing firm networks and relationships is really key to me um, I think the other thing was was finding community like like you had mentioned like did I find the right friends early on absolutely I think that you know I was never really a crazy partier um, you know I, I wasn't the type who who felt peer pressure to go out every weekend or you know I don't even drink people laugh because it's like I don't I don't drink coffee I don't drink alcohol I don't smoke I don't smoke period. cigarettes period period, period. Okay. like I, I don't okay. touch coffee alcohol ever um, I don't I don't smoke cigarettes I don't do any type of drugs um, I don't even eat fast food which is a, a whole nother story like mm -hmm. I haven't eaten McDonald's in eight years and people are like 
Yeah, but you just wait. Like once you become a lawyer, all of that will change. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like the the point of that is like I I that was that's been able to be sustained because I've always surrounded myself with just tremendously supportive, wonderful people who are champions of me and I am champions of them. And it's like in the hardest moments I can I can count on them to give me that moral boost that I need to get get through the hardest of moments. And it's like, you know, people I think the fear that I have and people looking at my record and it's something that I've I've heard from from people uh, in my time at Princeton is like, was it easy for you? Like mm-hmm. is school hard for you? And it's like, hell yeah. <laughs> it's like Princeton kicked my butt, man. It's like, you know, Princeton knocked me down plenty of times. But the key was that it was never able to keep me down. And I was always able to get back up and win the fight because I had people who helped me to do so. I was I was in touch with the right resources. I was taking advantage of, of all the, the uh, help that was offered when I needed it. And so, you know, and I think this is just universally true of the people that do the best at Princeton. They didn't do the best because they were you know, uniquely talented, like phenoms. I mean, maybe some people do, right? I mean, it is Princeton, it is Harvard. I'm sure some people go there and just like geniuses for the era. But I think more often than not, like the people who do the best at Princeton are the people who had those relationships, who who weren't afraid to seek help when they needed it. It's like everybody needs it, but the people who know how to adjust accordingly, their academics, get help, uh, you know, have a support base around them and, and take advantage of resources. Those are actually the ones who end up doing the best. Wow. Um, so... I'm going to ask this question. Don't take it the wrong way. Yeah. But, and, and it's not meant to be like one of those stupid interview questions where you, you'd say something fake and then move on. What mistakes have you made? Since a, being 18, not, not high school. Let's, yeah. let's talk about like since you've been a, a, what society calls an adult. Yeah. I think holding, holding myself to unrealistic standards of perfection uh, is something that I deal with constantly. And it manifests itself in various forms. Like I know that I struggle with perfectionism and and it won't always look the same way, but I can usually tell when I'm struggling with something that in, it's simply me channeling that, <laughs> that relentless desire to be perfect in some respect into something, right? So like one of my major struggles at Princeton, and I still, I talk about this very openly because I think everybody has mental health struggles that they're dealing with in some capacity on varying spectrums. Um, and it's, you know, I think that there's a stigma around mental health um, when it's like, you know, I think we all are dealing with something and it's like just a matter of like how severely um, and, and what exactly it is. Uh, and so for me, the big thing was at the end of my freshman year, I guess I should backtrack here a bit. I made the funny comment about I haven't eaten McDonald's in eight years. The reason for that is because in high school and like most of my my young life, I was actually overweight. I was quite mm. chubby. I was a chubby child growing up. Most people knew me as a chubby kid in the classroom. Um, and I ended up getting to my sophomore year of high school and was just like sort of deeply bothered by that. Nobody made fun of me or anything. You know, it was like, thankfully, like I was one of those extroverted kids that people knew, people liked. So it was like, they wouldn't make fun of me for being chubby, but like just personally was self-conscious, right? And so I was so deeply bothered by that, that at the end of my sophomore year of high school, I had uh went to my dad who was a a former bodybuilder and i said to my dad like dad like i need to lose this weight um can you help me like can you can you show me how to do this exercise thing and i'll take care of the nutrition thing and the reason why i think i'd sort of been sparked to finally make that change was i had stepped on a scale that year and i weighed 197 pounds uh which you know now doesn't seem like a lot right like athletes whatever but at that for that age and that height was was quite overweight and i sort of told myself i will not hit 200 pounds i have to change so through dad sort of exercise advice through me i've always been the person like like i said if i set my mind to something i will go 100 
even 10% into it. So I subscribed to all sorts of men's health magazines. I was reading relentlessly on like what it meant to be healthy, what healthy eating looked like. And over the course of the next six months, ended up losing 65 pounds. Uh, and so I went from being 197 pounds to at my lowest being 132.5 pounds. And that was over the course of a six month transformation. And so, and it was mostly over the summer. Wow. Uh, most of that weight was lost over the summer. And so I basically came from being the chubby kid sophomore year to then being the skinny kid junior year. And it was like, what in the world just happened? Mm. But it, it, it was, it was like a major lifestyle transformation for me. So like a large reason why, like I said, I don't, I don't do drugs. I don't, I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. Like all of that is just like rooted in that, that sort of lifestyle transformation. Like I'm very active. I very much like to keep my body clean and the things that I, that I consume. The problem with that, like I said, though, is that's all well and good until you take my relentless desire to do everything I do to the max uh, and put that in the healthy eating context. That creates the threat and the risk of problematic eating disorders. And so what ended up happening to me was like freshman year is like all that stuff was good. Like I was like lifting, I was eating well, like junior, senior year of high school. But then like freshman year, I get to college and I just have like this, like more independence to control what I'm eating, right? Like there's only so much that you can determine exactly what you're eating when you're still living at home. Uh, but then as a college, it's like I have full control. So it's like, why can't I eat perfectly now? Mm -hmm. Is like, there's no excuse why I should be eating a burger. There's like no excuse why I should be eating, you know, X unhealthy food. That's a really toxic way to think about healthy eating. Eating. And it did. It became, uh, I was on the border um, of, of this eating disorder called orthorexia, which is an, an unhealthy uh, fascination or, or fixation with, with, with healthy eating, yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah. is like, you know, to the extent that it becomes to disrupt, yep. it begins to disrupt normal social functioning. It's like when you go to a an event that would have chips like you know chips and guac or something is like you won't even eat at the event because mm -hmm. it's like it's unhealthy food or, or then eventually in like the most severe cases like you will stop going to social events because you know it won't have quote unquote healthy food um, and so you don't even want to be a part of that environment you won't go out to restaurants with friends because you know it won't have healthy food and you don't want to be a part of that environment and so like I said I was I wasn't uh that severe into it, but I started noticing tendencies in myself of just unhealthy relationships with food. Whereas like if friends would go to a restaurant or something like a Panera bread or like anywhere that like I was unsure if it would have healthy food, Subway was like my thing. And it was like, I would always have to stop at Subway, get my food first, and then we'll go to your place. And it was like, to, you know, the funny thing about orthorexia the is like you can, you convince yourself that other people are the problem. Oh, and so it was wow. like, it was like, why is it that they won't just be healthy like me? It's not like, why am I this crazy guy who feels a, a need to, always eat these foods or get Subway before we stop in. But it's like, why, why won't they just eat healthy? Like, mm. why are they even going to this Indian restaurant and getting all this curry rice? Right. Um, and, and it was only when I got to the UK and this was like part of why the Rhodes scholarship was so special to me, but I'd spent the summer between my freshman and sophomore year at Princeton in the UK as part of a UK uh, Fulbright Institute, Summer mm. Institute, where we were at the University of Bristol studying slavery in the, in the Atlantic heritage. Mm. And it was a group of 10 of us from across the United States. And it was very um, collaborative. It was, it was very group oriented where we did everything together. We would get breakfast together, we'd get dinner together. And that's where I started seeing those tendencies really picking up in very 
um, acute and problematic ways. Whereas, like when we would decide on what dinner was, it was like Jordan was always the one who I wouldn't be a I wouldn't be a disruption. Is like I'm not going to stop you from going to your Indian restaurant, but let me just hit that mm. subway on the corner really quick. Yeah. Right? And you could tell that people were getting a little a little frustrated. Like, why is he always doing this? Oh, and the Brits will tell you. Uh, th- I love this about them. They will just call you out on that. Oh yeah, yeah. They will tell you like this yeah. is weird. What are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. you know. And again, they say like why why won't they just understand? Uh, but eventually, like you know, I've always been very reflective. Like I mentioned the eighth grade example of like at the end of eighth grade year is like what is happening here and i i think that that's one of my biggest strengths is i'm I'm very in tune with what i'm doing and why i'm doing it why i'm feeling it and like always trying to reassess and so there was one of those moments where i just had to sort of have a i remember i uh i started researching like crazy like what healthy eating was because i knew like what i was doing was not actually healthy and it was like it, it jars your mind if you're a person like me who wants to do everything the right way and the best way, healthy eating is is perplexing because healthy eating in itself doesn't mean just eating quote unquote healthy foods. It means yeah. having a healthy relationship with foods where it's very balanced and you have things in moderation and that's actually what's healthy. And so like that drives you crazy because it's like, <laughs> it's not like a test, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you could get a hundred percent. It's like there, there's a whole bunch of, 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 of very blurry gray lines in there where it's like, okay, but like actually right now the healthy thing to do maybe is to have a burger with your friends. And that just drives you crazy uh, if you're a person like me. But anyway, things that required me sort of researching like what actually healthy eating is and then coming to terms and it's like, they're not the problem. I'm the problem. Mm -hmm. I need to reassess. I need to be, I need to just fully commit to, to, to social relationships over just food prioritization and, and, you know, enjoying healthy food and, uh, or enjoying, um, other types of food and and, ple- and getting pleasure from food and moderation, et cetera. And that fundamentally changed the way that I approach social, uh, social interaction like I, I became such a happier per- mm. uh, person I became much more extroverted it was like I, and it, it wasn't just rooted in like all of a sudden like you know I'm not going to be so fixated with food so I'm going to be an extrovert but it's just like that process of, of reflectively thinking about like how I had been navigating space with people then led to alterations just in general of like how I navigated space with people and so I, I had to sort of ask myself like okay, like, how do I actually want to navigate this world with people? Like, how do I want to exist in space with people? And that was when I committed myself to always just wanting to be that person who gave off this energy of positivity. And like, you know, I I realized there's a lot of negativity in the world. I I sort of rooted like my struggles with orthorexia and, and other things in sort of like, just like, that toxicity, like that sort of constant voice in your head that, you know, is like the external projecting in. And I said, like, I never want to be that voice in somebody's head that's negative, right? Like, I never want to be, I was also very judgmental when I was going through this relationship with food. Because like I said, you blame others. So it'd be like, you would see somebody in the gym and you're like, "Ah, they're not really lifting that heavy. Or like, you would see, you'd see somebody like order a burger and you're like, ah, they probably really shouldn't get that burger. It's just like, it's very, very toxic relationships with how you view people. And I said, like, that needs to get out of my head. Like, I will not judge somebody because you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know their backstory. You don't know, you know, you may see somebody who looks a little overweight, but you don't know why they're overweight. So, like, why would you even make a comment about their weight when, like, you don't know what struggles they may be dealing with? Maybe they're overweight because they're they're dealing with a family loss, right, and they're stress eating. And it's like, it, it would be 
it would be insensitive and I would say just just uh, inhumane of you uh, to, to start making judgments like that when those are the circumstances involved. So so now that's like a, a very fundamental principle in my life is like I will not judge a book by its cover at all. And like that's just like one example of things that in that moment I was sort of pushed to change in myself. And so now, you know, I'm very thankful that it's like when people talk to me, they're like, wow, like you just have this great energy. I, I, I like to consider myself like, uh, everybody's hype man is like, I will listen to you intently. Cause I, I'm very, uh, I'm very firm and like listening to people getting their story. Like I want people, uh, I believe everybody's story is so valuable and I want, I want to hear it. Um, and then after I hear your story is like, I think that we're our harshest critics. I know that because I am my own. And so I will be the person that you need that day to tell you like, you are incredible. You deserve to do what you're doing. What you're doing is spectacular. It matters to people. It matters for reasons beyond yourself. Like keep doing it and, and you know, turn off the voices in your head. Um, and so like, that's just, that's just one example, but you know, this is, this is all sort of me going off on a tangent here. No, your, it's fine. your original question was, <laughs> is there, you know, was there ever a time that, that I failed at something? Or no, 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 no. I mistake. I said mistake specifically. Mistakes, I think I feel fail sounds like an interview question. Yeah, um, yeah. cause I think a lot of life is, um, it's something I fail haha, yeah. to do is to, um, I'm, I'm constantly like replaying mistakes in my head yeah. and, when I look at you, I look at perfection. This is like imposter syndrome playing itself yeah. out right now. Um, and uh, I ask that not to, I'm not trying to humanize you. I'm not trying to take you down a peg. I really am asking that question because I think a lot of our listeners will be intimidated. Yeah. Right. And um, you, I, this is funny because I'm echoing what, I want to echo what you said. Like you are a font of positivity. Yeah. You on social media, you're pure positivity. And that's what I love about yeah. you. And um, and I'm not doing this to like put you in, in a place or anything like yeah. that. I just want you to be honest and like talk about, it's not easy, right? Yeah. It's, no, it's not, not something that you're just doing, you know, effortlessly. We yeah. talk about effortless mastery, right? Um, and that's why I'm asking you that question about mistakes. Cause sometimes I think people don't understand that. Like even people who've excelled so, so hard, right. Do have things they regret or make mistakes. And yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the orthorexia because it's A, something we don't talk about. Yeah, yeah. Right? We often think of body dysmorphia with A, with women, and B, with people who are either denying themselves food just for the sake of denying themselves food and not approaching, you know, food even, like, too healthily, right? Like, yeah. you were the opposite problem where you just, like, had this, like, this, like, kind of fetishization around food, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that's a side of nothing. Um, I just wanted to ask you quickly because uh, I wanted to talk about your future. And yeah. um, you're going to be doing something for two years. I'm trying to remember. What, what is it that you're doing yeah. for two years? So until the end of the year, uh, I'm working with this national nonprofit called the Greenlight Fund. Mm -hmm. uh, we seek to transport evidence-based impact organizations, so other nonprofits basically, uh, to distressed communities. We're in eight cities getting ready to expand to nine uh, across the United States. So communities like... Detroit, uh, Charlotte, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, and we will essentially um, collaborate. It's all very local. The executive director on site is always a local community member. We'll put together what we call a selection advisory council, which is a community of key stakeholders from all sorts of sectors in the city, foundation leaders, corporate partners, uh, public entities, usually um, some somebody affiliated with the mayor's office will be there. And we'll essentially ask them, um, like, what is the one issue area uh, that you would like to tackle, or, or particularly we use the word gap because it's very complementary to, you know, there are wonderful nonprofits already operating in these cities. Um, 
but there are still certain things that for funding purposes or whatever just sort of fall through the fall through the cracks and we we as an organization get people to the table and ask them like what is one gap that you would love to see flipped this year that you would love to see addressed this year and then once we determine what that gap is we will scout the country for the highest performing nonprofits that are currently addressing that issue in another similar context right so looking in Newark if like we say that like homelessness is something that we want to tackle this year we'll look at like what is Detroit what what are some not nonprofits that are doing this really well in Detroit and Chicago and and LA etc and then we will invest the capital that they need to cover startup expenses and re, uh, staffing resources etc to basically transport and then um, and route a a Newark um, subsect of that nonprofit. So that's what that's what I mean by transporting nonprofits is we're essentially giving them the capital investment that they need to start a local sector of it. Um, and that'll be until the end of this year. Uh, what I'm working on is actually um, exploring the possibility, sort of laying the landscape for them to potentially expand next to Newark and to Baltimore. So it's super exciting stuff for me because I think that the mission of Greenlight is so great. It's done a lot of great work in cities. It's It's been in ba- Boston for 12 years is the longest one and just, you know, flipped 12 different uh, metrics, 12 gaps have been addressed in Boston. It's been super great for students there. And I think it'd be so good for a city like Newark. So I'll be working on hopefully trying to lay the conditions for, for Greenlight to come here. And then um, at the start of the, the next year, and then for the, the next uh, two years until I enroll in the joint program 2021, uh, I'm still evaluating my options, looking at uh, what are some of the different jobs out there uh, that would be good fits for me over the next two years. I'm really prioritizing experience. Uh, I wanted to be rooted in community development and impact. Mm-hmm. And so impact investing, you had mentioned at the start of the at the start of the show is something that that really interests me because I have I've done a little bit of that before. I, I worked with the foundation last year, the MCJ Amelia Foundation, that's very rooted in community development and impact investing, et cetera. And so um, you know, ideally I would get involved in some sort of community rooted impact investing over the course of the next two years and get some professional experience there. So actually, this is in line with what you were just talking about, but that why why a JD MBA? I'm still fascinated by the law. I still love the law. Uh, I still love policy and government operations. And so, you know, there's still this sort of, um, still this this sort of, uh, I don't want to say struggle within myself. It, it's not necessarily a struggle, but there's there's still these pulls in myself where I as much as I feel passion for business-oriented social impact, also realize all of the great impact that originally drew me to law and policy. And so the JD MBA, I think, is just a, a high-throttle, four-year way for me to try to get a better sense and, and, and more clarity around, is there some way for me to work on the intersections of those, of those communities? You know, there's this concept by a Harvard business professor, former Harvard business professor, Joe Nye, called the tri-sector athlete, or tri-sector leadership. And it's essentially this person who deftly navigates navigates the nonprofit, public, and private sectors and using the full potential, harnessing the full potential of all three sectors and, and networks within all three sectors to maximize and scale social impact. And like that to me is the most fascinating, uh, fulfilling job pathway. Is like if I can somehow find a way to root myself in a job or jobs multiple uh, that that are sort of having me navigate those three sectors and do so in ways that that allow me to fundamentally be rooted in communities like Newark impacting people like that would be great. But like in order to do that, I can't I can't disregard an entire sector of like where I find passion, which is law and policy. So the the JD MBA to me I think will be four years of just 
extremely intent conscious and and developmental opportunities that I'm taking on to try to continue sort of uh, uh, working on the boundaries of all of those three. And then hopefully at the end of those four years, we'll have a better sense of like what a career pathway for me will look like that will allow me to, to harness the full power of all those three for, for people in Newark and beyond. This leads me to my last question, actually, which is um, what's your biggest fear about Newark, you know, looking forward in the future? Because yeah. oftentimes we ask about how hopeful we are, but I actually want to ask the like kind of flip of like, what is it that makes you afraid? And I don't mean like a deep fear, but I mean, just sort of like, what do you worry about? Yeah. So for me, especially now getting more rooted in social impact business and impact investing and, you know, community development is the the big I wouldn't even call it a buzzword, but just like the big sort of concern uh, around that is gentrification, right? Mm. Which is, you know, um, that as community get as communities get developed, price of living increases, real estate prices increase, and community demographics start to change as more middle to high income and less diverse populations start to come in to, to uh, as a natural response to the um, growing sort of education requirements of, of the job economy. And so, you know, that... That for me is a big concern. You know, some case studies in gentrification are like Brooklyn, for instance, just looks a lot different than the Brooklyn of you know 20 years ago. And so there's a lot of really exciting development happening in Newark right now. Like I love what we see happening downtown. I think that the Haynes Building is a great example of this. Teacher Village, um, Black Swan Espresso mm-hmm. is a great example of this. <clears throat> you know, the fact that we have a Starbucks downtown is super cool. You know, it's like <clears throat> I always joke around with people when I say Newark is one of the only cities, probably where one of the only major cities, probably where if you have downtime between a meeting, you can't just look on your phone, Starbucks, and sit in a Starbucks. I mean, it's just like they're not here. Um, and, and you know, I think like that that development's really exciting. It's a sign that things are changing in Newark and great job opportunities are coming in. Great economic prosperity uh, awaits us in the future. But at the same time, I want to make sure that as we continue to grow and continue to develop, that we are very much rooted in this other concept called sustainable development, and right, and, and equal development. And it's very difficult to attain. There are only a few cases in which it's been done somewhat successfully, but I don't, I don't discount the fact that NOR can be one of those case studies in it. And like I've sort of devoted like I said, these next six years, two years that I'm working, then four years on the joint program to try to understand how I can be a champion and I could be uh, an advocate in making sure that Newark and other communities continue to grow sustainably because I don't, there's this constant pull in myself where it's like, I don't want things to be stagnant, right? Like I want opportunity to come to Newark. I want development to come to Newark. I want it to be positively transformed, but I also don't want the cultural aspects of of Newark and just the people, right? Like the current community members that are here that make Newark what it is so great um, to be left behind in that developmental process. So that, that to me is the most promising thing in our future is the development that awaits, but also my biggest fear is that it won't be sustainable. And so I've devoted my life to trying to make sure that it is. Thanks for that. Um, So we're going to end the podcast with the question I always end uh, with, and that's, what are you most excited for in Newark? I think, like I said, just just the future that awaits, I think, is so bright. We see so much activity here. I actually have friends who have talked about potentially living in Newark, right? They're, they get these really cool jobs in New York City, but but want to live in Newark because they think that there's just so much here that's a great place to live. And, like, that's something that, I mean, you just wouldn't even imagine 10 years ago, right? It would like be, like, people graduating from Princeton talking about coming to live in Newark, right? I mean, it's, like, super, super cool to me. So just, like, the perception of Newark on the outside is changing in really great ways. You know, uh, I give this example all the time of, like, when I was at Princeton as a freshman, I told somebody that I lived in Newark, you know, it's like coffee chat. It's like you're at you're at the dining table and, and they're like, oh, like, where 
are you from? I was like, I'm from Newark. And they said, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry. I was like, okay, <laughs> sorry. I don't know why, but okay. But I mean, like, you know, like, I think that what's so, so exciting is that, like, I don't think that that'll be the case too much longer is like the outside perception of Newark really is changing and, and, and for the better. And so that's very exciting to me. Um, and I think, you know, this is, now sort of inward facing, but also exciting in Newark is like the fact that I'm going to be doing work here uh, over the next two years is super cool to me after being gone for so long. I'm excited to come back. <laughs> Mine's a little more narrow. Um, it's just, uh, it doesn't really do it with Newark that much, except the fact that I'll be celebrating it here in Newark. But we do, we are approaching the end of September, which means it's Oktoberfest. Nice. <laughs> uh, and I'm, uh, I'm a big purveyor of um, German beers and culture. So I will be having my lovely Oktoberfest beers in my apartment. And, uh, um, it's also a nice sign of fall, um, cause I love those deep malty beers. Um, and I'll be heading over to Hoboken at some point cause there's a great German restaurant called Pilsner House, yes. uh, over in Hoboken. So that's my, what I'm excited for right now. Um, so that's it for this episode. I want to thank our guest, uh, Jordan Thomas. This is Annie Antunes. Thank you. Uh, host and producer of the Pod and Market podcast, editing and sound engineering by Bob Phrase, podcast logo and design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Kateas. Pod intro and outro music by Dan Myler. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So I'm going to end with a quote um, from a book that I just got. And um, if you're ever here in the studio, you'll notice there's a lot of um, really cool artwork and pictures on the wall. And one of which is uh, two framed quotes, you on point tip, all the time, five, which is um, a reference to one of my favorite bands, uh, or I guess uh, rap hip hop group called A Tribe Called Quest. And there's this book uh, written by a poet um, slash music critic called, uh, his name is Hanif Abdurraqib. And um, it's just a sort of, he wrote this book that's a sort of love letter it actually says it on the cover um to this uh this group that's near and dear i think to a lot of people who grew up in the new york metro area um and their their last album um uh fife uh fife dog died uh, uh ooh, three years ago now my god it's been so long and he um uh their last album uh came out the weekend that um uh, the president of the united states got elected and um, I think it's just so iconic, the, that album to that time period. Um, and a sort of closing out of, it's, it's, it acts as a closing out of the 90s and a lot of the hopes we had. Um, but I'm going to read this um, sort of last passage from it for our final quote. We can go about speaking the name of a tribe called Quest as we might speak the name of someone from our distant past who changed our way of seeing. If I close my eyes now, I think I see the world as a tribe called Quest would have had, had me see it. I think I can see my people dancing in the streets, like nothing they loved has ever been set on fire. There are not enough roses in the world for me to lay at the feet of this impossible group, but I hope this effort counts. I hope Fipe can see us all still trying, from wherever he may be. I hope Q-Tip knows that he's done something great. I hope when the time comes for the generation after mine to talk about what's real, they'll pull a tribe CD out of their pockets, worn down from a decade's use, and perhaps an older sibling. I hope they'll put it in a CD player and let a room be carried away. Thank you.